normally at this time we dismiss our kids back to their teaching time, but because it's the last Sunday of the month, we'll invite them to remain in the room with us for the whole service. And I'm going to start today in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to take the first five minutes to do something I almost never do in worship. I want to honor uh, somebody who is a part of our church family that doesn't get to worship in the room with us on a normal Sunday. Uh, I failed to say last Sunday when we gathered, it was just an oops on my part, I forgot to point out last Sunday was our fourth anniversary as a church. It was four years ago last Sunday that we launched as a church, and so we celebrate four years. And if you happen to be one of those people who were here four years ago on our public launch day, you may remember at the conclusion of the service that an elderly gentleman uh, came forward, slowly made his way up on stage, and offered uh, the prayer of dedication for Freedom Church as we were launching. His name was is uh, W.C. Smith. And uh, he, because of health issues and just not being real mobile, isn't able to come and worship with us in the room on Sunday mornings. So he tunes in uh, on the website and watches and takes part in the service with his wife, Maxine. Uh, they now live at the Blake in Malbus. Uh, but I wanted to share a word uh, with you about him today. Mr. Smith, I met him 16 years ago, almost 16 years ago. Uh, by chance, I believe it was by God's design, I was getting my car serviced over in Mobile, and I was in the little waiting area there in the dealership, uh, in the little coffee area, waiting for them to take care of my car, and saw an older gentleman uh, seated there in the same area with me that I had never met before. He looked like he was about 80 years old. And we struck up a conversation, and as we were talking and introducing ourselves and sharing a little bit about life, he was telling me how he and his wife had just moved here from Montgomery, and they were wanting to be closer to their daughter, and so they had just moved to the eastern shore, moved to Daphne. And uh, I, he asked where I was from, and, and I told him, and I said, nobody's ever heard of where I'm from, a little, little town called Brundage. And he said, oh, I know Brundage. I know Brundage well. He said, I've got two nieces and a nephew who live in Brundage. And I said, really? I, you know, small town. I probably know who they are. Who are they? And he said, well, my nieces are named Mary and Martha, and my nephew's name is Don. And I said, well, Mary is my aunt, and Martha and Don are my parents, so who are you? <laughs> And um, he looked at me kind of funny, and he said, why, I'm W.C. Smith. That's my grandmother's brother. My grandmother, who I have just had always been so close to until she passed away in the mid-'90s, and I'd always heard about W.C. and had never met him. He's not W.C. to me. Now he is my Uncle Bill. But I had never met him. He served in the military for his, throughout his career, served overseas a lot of that time. And uh, I want to take just a moment and just tell you a little bit about my Uncle Bill's story. He is, and part of the reason that I'm sharing this with you is we don't have many of these guys left in America who have done what he did. He is a veteran who served as a pilot in the Vietnam War, in the Korean War, and served overseas flying for, through three years of World War II. He, he got saved during World War II while he was serving on the British Gold Coast of Africa. Now, nobody knows where that is. That's what's current-day Ghana. And if you don't know your African geography, that's on the Atlantic Ocean side of Africa. He flew the route for three years flying C-47s and C-46s. That Their route was from Ghana, think South America side of Africa, across the whole Saharan Desert, across Saudi Arabia, across Iran, Pakistan, India, flew the hump of the Himalaya Mountains, and they supplied the flying tigers in Southeast Asia and China, and they flew that route back and forth 
for three years under heavy fire. They would fly these missions where the planes were too heavily loaded with cargo, too heavily loaded to make it over the Himalayan mountains. So they would have to fly the valleys at night and fly through the hump, a dip in the mountains that they couldn't see. They had to fly in the dark and use their their watches and a flashlight and a compass to just fly a certain route. If you didn't stay right on course, you'd fly into the mountain because they couldn't fly over it. And, of course, the enemy would position themselves knowing where they had to fly through the hump. And so they took terrible casualties flying this route night after night. And he said one night he just knew in his heart he just wasn't going to make it back home. And and he just promised God for the first time in his life, if you'll get me back, I'll give you the rest of my life. Well, they survived the fire and he got back and he found his, um, he found his chaplain there fiery chaplain who he said would tell you if you don't listen to my message and respond you're going to go to hell and he said well i found that chaplain and i gave my heart to jesus and got baptized in the atlantic ocean well if you know my uncle bill if you spend any time around uncle bill you will you'll find out two things really fast he loves jesus and he loves america and uh, i wanted to just share with you today because he is the most senior member of our church family that today is uncle bill's 95th birthday And so I want to ask you to do a favor. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask Dave if you will pan back on the camera. Just just indulge me. Will you turn and face the camera? And when I say one, two, three, will you just shout with me, Happy birthday, Uncle Bill. One, two, three. Happy birthday, Uncle Bill. Would you just show him a little freedom love again? You can be seated. Uncle Bill, we thank you for all that you have done serving our country and our Lord. And we're glad to get to celebrate your 95th. Well, if you have not been with us lately, or maybe today's your first time here, I'll tell you that today we're wrapping up a series uh, that has just been entitled Simplify. And as we're concluding this, um, I shared with somebody the other day, I said, this was one of those series, I wasn't sure how far it was supposed to go when I started it, so um, I'm just studying and praying and preaching until I'm supposed to move on, and I I thought I was done a week ago, and I felt this prompting from the Holy Spirit that... I wasn't done until I went to the book of Ecclesiastes, and I didn't know why I hadn't been in Ecclesiastes. And I really felt him prompting me that there's another word from Ecclesiastes before we're done with this thing of simplifying. And so without knowing what that was about, went to just took the whole book of Ecclesiastes and camped in there. And after going through the whole book, realized why this is what we're supposed to conclude with. So what I'm going to share with you is sort of an overview of the collective wisdom of Solomon. Now, if you're not familiar with Solomon, he is the wisest man who ever lived, and that was by God's design. God just poured more wisdom into him than any human being has ever had before. And toward the end of his life, Solomon wrote down a lot of just his observations about life. And there's no other book of the Bible quite like Ecclesiastes. We get a lot of Solomon's wisdom in Proverbs, but we sort of get a different spin in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you're not familiar with it, if you just read through it, there are times that you'll be reading Ecclesiastes and go, how did this get in the Bible? I mean, there are some observations that Solomon makes late in life that you're just kind of going... That doesn't sound like what I hear in church. And in fact, I'm going to tell you on the front end, I could have entitled today a bunch of stuff they never told you in church, but they should have. Because today is going to be the real deal. Today is what what Solomon had to say when he had looked over life and said, let me tell you what I've really figured out about life. And so today's message 
is, I think, going to be intensely practical. And it is about simplifying your expectations. And I start with this basic premise. That our experience, typically in life, our experience of a lot of things in life, is tremendously defined by our expectations. Would you agree with that? Expectation defines what you experience more than the experience itself does. I mean, I could give you any number of illustrations, but maybe one of the easiest ones is just to point out, Jackie and I love going to live theater. It's one of the things we discovered early on that we share in common, so we go every chance we get. We're season ticket holders at Theater 98, but we not only go to every production in Fairhope, but we go to to the ones in Pensacola and Mobile and Chickasaw and Biloxi and New Orleans. I mean, we'll, we go wherever because we love to take in live theater. So we've taken everything, taken in everything we could from the really basic to the really elaborate stuff. We've had the opportunity to go to uh, Broadway on tour stuff in Pensacola and in New Orleans, but also to a number of Broadway productions in New York. So we've seen the very simple stuff, a lot of that with just uh, volunteers from top to bottom. Everybody's a volunteer to the very elaborate, expensive productions where everybody is a professional at what they do. And here's the observation that I've made about that. We enjoy most of the stuff that we go to, period, but we, we enjoy most of the things that we go to at the smaller theaters where it's all volunteers and you can tell they're not professional actors and actresses and the singers don't sing like they belong on a Broadway stage and yet we found that we can enjoy those a great deal and we, we've enjoyed the experiences all the way up to Broadway type stuff. But here's the thing that stands out to me. A couple of times when we've been to major Broadway productions, a couple of those times we've come away very disappointed. Really disappointed. Talented people, a lot of effort and expense put into those productions, and yet we came away disappointed. Why? Because this was Broadway. We spent a lot of money on those tickets, and we traveled a long way to go to those shows, and we went in with just unbelievably high expectations. Now, here's the thing about it. If we had seen those exact same productions... In a local theater, if we had seen that in Theater 98 or Chickasaw Civic Theater or something, we would have talked about it for the next month. You won't believe what they just did in Fairhope. It's amazing. We would have been blown away by it. But because we saw it on Broadway and we expected so much more, we walked away going, oh, man, that was, I was really hoping for more. That wasn't really... What I was hoping for, what's the difference? It's all about expectation. You've experienced the same kind of thing. How many times have you been to a movie or you've been to a concert and friends told you, oh, it's the best movie you'll ever watch. It's the best concert you'll ever go to. And you're so pumped up. You're so juiced when you go in that you overexpected. And what you take in, as it turns out, probably was a pretty good movie or a pretty good concert. But you walked away going, that was kind of disappointing. I was expecting something more. Why? Because somebody told you it's going to be the best movie you've ever seen, the best concert ever, and your expectations were what? They, they were unrealistic, right? And so expectation defined your experience. And that's what happens in life. If you have ridiculously unrealistic expectations, it will spoil your experience. And you know the place it will do that faster than any other is in relationships, in romance, and in marriage. When you come in with unrealistic expectations, you can get into a good relationship and you can spoil it because you had the wrong set of expectations. Now, you can spoil it on either end. You can spoil it by coming in with terrible expectations. And I'm surprised how many people I've met who think like that. 
They've heard all their lives, yeah, why ruin a good relationship by getting married? You know, you turn somebody that's romantic and exciting into a ball and chain the day you say, I do. We've all heard that, right? You know, people who just have terrible expectations, and it's like, yep, I bet you've got a terrible marriage. If you carry that idea about marriage with you, you'll affect the experience horribly by your expectation. But you know you can do the very same thing on the other extreme. You go into a relationship and you have unrealistic expectations that this other person is just going to be a Romeo. He's going to be the perfect man, the perfect woman. She's always going to be hot to trot. He's always going to be romantic. He's always going to understand my needs and my feelings. And she's always going to be dialed into exactly what I need. And every day is just going to be sweeter and better. And then you run into the brick wall of reality when you get with a real life person. Isn't that the truth? And it feels so disappointing because this isn't how marriage is supposed to be. This isn't how a boyfriend or a girlfriend is supposed to be. They're always supposed to love me and understand me and be there for me. And instead, what you get is a real life person who has bad days and good days and who has bad breath in the morning and who gets in a foul mood. And and they're just real. They're human. Expectation can take what would have been a happy, good relationship and make something so disappointing. Today, we just want to talk honestly with each other from the Word of God and around the Word of God about simplifying your expectations so that you can really enjoy life, relationships, and work as God intended. And so what I'm going to share with you is if you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that there are four basic expectations in life that Solomon says, you better just let go of those or you better tremendously change those expectations. I'm going to preach three of them and I'll mention the fourth one um, just to make it kind of all fit better. I'm just going to preach the three and tell you what the fourth one was. In small group, you'll talk about all four of them. And then I'm going to talk about three expectations that Solomon points out that you can hang on to, that you can believe in. So the first one that I'll mention to you is don't expect to find the perfect job to give your life meaning and significance. Have you ever noticed how much people are just looking for that now? Just got to find that right job. I don't just want a job. I want the job that's just going to make me excited to get up and go to work in the morning. And that expectation, that over-expectation for many people is just souring their whole work experience to the point that some people won't stay with a job or won't take a job because they're looking for the perfect job. Solomon said this about work, one of the many things he said in Ecclesiastes 2. He said, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. And then he just goes on and on, naming off the different things he worked and did. And he says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained. He said, when I tried to find meaning in life through my work, letting work be the thing that defined meaning for me, I found that work just couldn't do that. It reminds me of what we're watching today taking place. And I'm just going to share some personal observations about this. You see if your experience doesn't line up with what I'm saying. It's interesting to me to note that something significant has happened in our culture And it relates very much to what happens to people in terms of their work and their expectations. And there's been a real shift in my lifetime. Now, 
I think I can safely say that looking back in our history, at least back the past several generations, it probably goes way beyond what I'm describing today, but at least back into the 1800s, I think we could agree together that with every successive generation, as we're thinking back through our parents, our grandparents, great-grandparents, and even a generation or two beyond them, would you agree with me that with every successive generation in America moving forward in time, that every generation typically parents have helped to raise the ceiling for their, the generation coming behind them. They've raised the ceiling in every generation for their kids. What do I mean by raise the ceiling? I mean they've raised the level of how far their kids can go in terms of the education that they have an opportunity to obtain, in terms of the lifestyle that they get, and just all that goes with that. How high you could soar in terms of your career opportunities and how far you could go in life. Have you seen that just... Being raised generation by generation. Haven't you watched that? I mean, if you think back a few generations, we've probably all got ancestors not many generations back that, you know, they may not have even made it through grade school because they didn't have an opportunity to go beyond that. They were forced into the work world or, you know, circumstances just weren't such that they could go very far in their education. And so when they had kids, they made sure that their kids got to go further. That their kids got to make it at least, you know, to high school. And just generation after generation, they've just given the next one a higher ceiling to go further. My grandparents, none of them got to go to college. I mean, that would have, that is unheard of. But my grandmother and grandfather, very simple, small-time farmers in Clayton, Alabama, made sure that their three kids, I mean, it was an amazing stretch. They all three got to go off to college. Me and my dad got to go to Auburn. He got to become a pharmacist. They were raising the ceiling for their children so that they could go further. All three of their kids lived a different kind of lifestyle than the little wooden two-bedroom house on the end of a mile-long dirt road that my grandparents always knew. And just in so many different ways, you see the changes, you know. A family that, you know, for the first time gets to have indoor plumbing, indoor electricity. They get to have an automobile. But the next generation, there's two automobiles in the family. There's a bigger house. There's more education. You know, now my dad raises three sons, and we all get to go to college, and multiple ones of us get to pursue graduate degrees. And, you know, now in my generation, everybody gets a car, and everybody has a cell phone, and everybody gets stuff that the previous generation either didn't experience or worked years and years and years to get there. Are you tracking with me? With every successive generation, the ceiling got raised until the last decade or two. And my generation, I believe, my generation, much of which is in this room, for the very first time, I believe that we are observing a total change where instead of raising the ceiling for the generation that is our children... Instead of raising the ceiling for them, we have only raised the floor. And many futurists will tell you that in American culture, for the first time possibly in American history, that we are going to see a generation that on average throughout the course of their adult lifespan will not live beyond what all previous generations have, but financially and in terms of just their wealth and all, will live a step down from that. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to say that wealth defines success. It certainly does not. But 
just making an observation about what people experience in life. That for the first time in American history, it looks like a generation may not experience as much as their parents and grandparents did in terms of income and, and lifestyle and all of that stuff. And so for the first time, we may not be raising the ceiling anymore for them. And it's not necessarily a problem that we're not doing that. The problem is that instead of raising the ceiling, we raised the floor. What do I mean by raising the floor? The floor defines how far you can fall. The floor defines how far down you can go. And this may have changed even more so than the height of the ceiling over the years. Because in pretty much all generations past, if you didn't work hard, if you didn't get an education or learn a trade and stay with it and work at it, where would life take you? It would take you far down, wouldn't it? It would mean that you didn't have a nice place to live. It would mean that you, you might not have three meals a day to eat. It would mean that you probably didn't have an automobile to drive. Are you following me? The, ceiling, I mean, the, the floor was pretty far down. You were allowed to fall pretty far down. Now, I can remember when I was in high school, my history teacher throughout high school, Miss Betty Hickson, she ended up being our 12th grade homeroom teacher. And Miss Hickson would tell us this thing again and again that stuck with me. Miss Hickson always said that now she was talking in terms of the government because earlier on it was the government that was raising the floor. Now it's parents that are raising the floor. But she would say when the government takes away a citizen's right to fail, they've taken away one of our most important rights. That you begin to ruin the culture when you take away the right to fail. And so when the government comes along and says, we're never going to let you go without. You may not work, but we'll always make sure you've got a place to live and food to eat. And the, you've all, always gotten the necessities whether you work or not. And Miss Hickson would always rail against that and say, it's one of our fundamental rights. We need the right to fail because that motivates us to work, to get an education, to seek to, to do better and to achieve more. That always stuck with me. But here we are 30 years removed from Miss Hickson's history class. And I would say to you today that the government is not the fundamental problem. A generation of parents have become the fundamental problem. Because we have raised the floor so much that now we have a generation who have learned from us that no matter how bad it gets, no matter what you go through, you can count on never having to go below the level of having a decent place to live and a comfortable bed to sleep in. And having air conditioning and the ability to run it all you want to. Having a reliable vehicle that you can drive. Having a smartphone on your hip. Having a laptop that you can use when you need to. Having plenty of clothes in the closet. Am I getting far off base? Are you tracking with me on that? Would you agree that that's the floor in American culture today for a generation? That we as parents have, whether, we, whether it's through what we said or just what we've modeled, we have said to our kids, we will make sure that you never experience poverty. We will make sure you've always got a warm bed and a decent roof over your head. We will make sure that you've got reliable wheels, that you can, you know, good tires, good enough tires, and a, a vehicle that you can rely on, you know, who do you know in the average American family that hasn't ensured that their kids live a life where they've got the cell phone and the car and the laptop and it just goes on and on and the flat screen TV and all? That that is the closest to poverty that an American can experience today.
coming up having been in a middle class family. Some of you are going, where are you going with this? I'm going to the heart of the problem. One of the fundamental teachings of Scripture is summed up by Paul very well in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 when he says, The man who does not work shall not eat. If you don't work, you don't enjoy the benefits that those who do work enjoy. And when you take away the right to land hard at a tough place in life where you truly go without, you remove most of the motivation to work hard, to get an education. And what you can wind up with is sort of a blasé attitude about work that is kind of like, well, I can really be selective about work. I can sort of wait until I find the job that really fits me. That's got, you know, it's a good fit for my personality and my gifts. And it, it's really meaningful. I mean, I don't want to just make widgets. I want a job that I'm going to be excited about going to. The real deal that the grown-ups should all get is that a, work, that, that a, a job is work. They're going to have to pay you to do it. If you could just be so excited about getting up and doing it every day, they wouldn't have to deposit anything in your account for having done it. Amen? It's the reason that you look forward to your vacation time. Because it's work. It's not always fun. And yet, we have without meaning to, we have passed on this concept to a generation that, you know, you need to work. But it's okay, you can hold out for the job that's right for you. With the net effect that we are training a generation, that if it's not the job that you were looking for, and if it's not giving you meaning, we'll prop you up until you find what you're looking for. Whether that means you come live with us through a portion of your 20s and or 30s or beyond, or we'll financially back you up to make sure that you don't go below the floor that is... A comfortable home, an automobile, and your cell phone, and blah, 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 blah. Do you see the problem? It is a problem. Does anybody in the room, have you ever known anybody who's fallen into that trap? I'm the only one. There's three or four of us. Come on, raise your hand if you have watched somebody do this. All right, you can put them down. Don't raise your hand if you're sitting there going, oh me, I think we may have done this. We need to teach a generation to have a healthy expectation about work. It doesn't mean that you should have to go to a job that you just hate all the time. But it does mean that we understand that work is something that's expected of all of us. And that it is a privilege. And that there's a lot of the world who doesn't have gainful employment. And that if you have a job, you're blessed to have a job that pays the bills today. Today, there are over 900 million people who will be in starvation, actively in starvation, don't have enough food to eat because they cannot be gainfully employed in a place that will just put food on the table. Over 900 million in the world. If we have a job that provides food and a roof, we should give thanks to God. A healthy expectation about work is a good beginning point. And there's nothing like having to go without to teach you this expectation. And by the way, for many of us, that's the only teacher that will ever get this lesson across. You go without. You be allowed to actually go without and have to earn what you have. And unless you're willing to earn it, you don't get it. Unless you have that as your teacher, it's hard to ever have a healthy appreciation 
for a job. Solomon puts work back in perspective. You with me on that first one? Well, let's see if it doesn't get a little better from here. Number two, don't expect life or relationships to always be fair, predictable, or easy. Solomon said this, The fastest runner does not always win the race. The strongest soldier does not always win the battle. The wisest does not always have food. The smartest does not always become wealthy. And the talented one does not always receive praise. Time and chance happen to everyone. The bottom line that Solomon is sharing here is life isn't always fair. Amen? Has it always been fair to you? Of course it hasn't. It hasn't for me either because we're not in heaven yet. We live in a broken, fallen world where there is injustice and there is unfairness. And at some level, that is just so okay. In fact, it is beyond okay. At some level, it's good news that life isn't always fair. You know why? Because if life was fair, we'd all go to hell. Wouldn't we? If you got what you deserved, if I got what I deserved, I'd never know God and I'd go to hell for eternity. Praise God, life isn't fair. In the middle of an, of an unfair and unjust world, God invades and says, let me bring some holy unfairness. Let me pour out grace on you. Let me show you favor that you don't deserve. So it's a good thing that life isn't always fair in that we receive a lot of good that we don't deserve. But mixed in with that, we live in a world where there's plenty of injustice. You've experienced it. You know the reality that Solomon's talking about. How oftentimes do you see when different people are applying for a job that it's not the most qualified who gets the job? Who always gets the job? It's the person who knows somebody. That's how it works in the world that I've ever been around. It's not the resume that gets the job. It's the personal relationship. You better network with people. That doesn't sound like a teaching from the Bible, does it? You know, there was a day recorded in the scripture where Jesus just shook his head and acknowledged the fact that his followers just did not understand how the world works. He said, you need to be shrewd. You need to be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. You better learn how the world works. And in the real world, it's not about what's fair. The fastest doesn't always win. The smartest doesn't always get the job. There's a lot in life. That isn't fair. And again, I'm going to say a word to us as parents. We are creating a problem as parents when we try and create a little bubble of justice for our children to make sure that they never bump into unfairness, that they never have to experience cruelty and injustice, that if anything rubs up against them in a hurtful way, we've got to run in and rescue them and make sure Johnny and Susie don't ever get treated unfairly and so we create these bubble children I mean I really think we need to create inflatable suits for them to go to school in so nothing can happen to them they can't skin their knee and you know what you're going to wind up with is pathetic adults you're going to wind up with mamby pamby milk toast adults that don't know how to deal with real life and we will be the ones who did it I don't know that there's any place that you see this more than if you have anything to do with the public school system. God bless all the teachers and principals and administrators who deal with us idiot parents. Looking at Lynn up here, a school teacher on the front row. God bless all of you who have to put up with us, who have to rescue our children from you, the bad, evil teacher, who didn't treat 
our little Johnny as fairly as they should have been treated. You know what? Our kids need to experience some unfairness. They need to experience some bumps and bruises in life. Because you don't learn character in a little bubble. You learn character and perseverance when life is hard. And when people don't always treat you right. And you learn to do the right thing even when there's injustice done to you. Amen? Amen. Yes, come on. That is the truth of life. It's not always going to be fair. And having happiness in life isn't about adjusting all of our circumstances so that we always get fairness in return. It is about learning how to live in the real world with real bosses and real friends and real spouses and real boyfriends and girlfriends who don't always give us what we deserve. Now, when you begin to work that down to just the real places in life where this matters, I don't think there's any place that this matters more than in love relationships. Where we have unrealistic expectations that we should always get back exactly what we put in. And so we come in with these ridiculously high expectations. On the front end, we we tend to see people who just have these crazy expectations. I don't know. Maybe it's because they spent too much time at the movies or reading romance novels or what. But but we've just got this perfect picture of what Romeo is going to look like and how wonderful and understanding and ideal he's always going to be. And then you get in a relationship and you can't ever find somebody who's really like what was on the big screen or in the novel. And you know why? It's because it was a movie. It was a book. It wasn't real life. We've got so many people who have been trained to believe and and really kind of brainwashed by the Christian community to believe that there is this perfect mate for them out there. And Jesus has got my perfect mate. And when they experience the reality of living with another human being, they immediately are going, well, that must not have been the right one because this clearly isn't my perfect ideal mate. Let me tell you, if you're holding out for your perfect mate, you better marry Jesus because everybody else is going to disappoint you. It's the truth. God doesn't let you get married so that you can have a perfect mate. Because if that was his plan, you're screwing up the other person's life because they sure didn't get a perfect mate, right? Jesus let you get married partly because he's made us with a great desire for close relationships. But above everything else, because he wants to make us holy. And his greatest tool in reshaping us and making us holy is a marriage partner. And I wish that happened easier than it does. But I mean, to make me holy, Jesus is having to chip off some rough edges. And the best way to chip off some rough edges is with a chisel. I'd rather he did it with a sponge, you know, something soft. But it takes some force to work the rough edges out of our lives. Nobody's in a position to do that better than the people that we live with. And so bringing some healthy expectations will give us a much better opportunity to experience real joy in relationships. What do healthy expectations look like? Well, for starters, a healthy expectation is realizing that marriage is almost never 50-50. Have you caught on to that? We go in thinking it would be fair if this marriage is 50-50. It would be fair, but guess what? Life ain't fair, neither is marriage. In a real marriage, most of the time... It's 80-20, or 70-30, or 60-40. And here's the really wild part about that. This week, 80-20 may have left 80% being you doing the work of the relationship and pursuing what's good and feeling like, 
I'm giving four times as much as he's giving or as she's giving. But the good news is that tends to flip-flop. And a day later or a week later or a month later, it's 70-30. And they're the one having to give the, the 70 while you bring the 30. Isn't that the truth? We ebb and flow. Hormones go up and down, don't they? We get... Yeah, even the ladies said amen to that. Life just has cycles to it. It's a rough week at work. Had to work a lot of overtime. Just rough stuff going on that's creating a lot of pressure and you don't feel a lot of reserve. Sounds a lot like the bucket is empty. When your bucket's empty, you're probably not bringing your 50%. In a healthy relationship, we ebb and flow. When you can see that your mate's bucket is empty instead of going, well, if you're not giving much, I ain't giving much. I'm only going to give what I get back because that's fair. Well, if what you want is fairness in marriage, then fair is about all you're going to get is a fair marriage. Or maybe below fair. Who wants a fair marriage? I want a great marriage. And a great marriage is one that, that realizes it's almost never going to be 50-50. Sometimes Jackie is just at a great place and she pours so much more into me and into our relationship than I do. Praise God for those days. I could swim in that pool all the time. It's good. But there are other times when her tank is low. Her bucket's empty. And I'm the one that needs to pour into it. And we can't afford to keep score and go, this isn't fair. For the last three days, I've done this, this, and this, and you haven't done nearly as much as I have done. This is supposed to be 50-50. Realistic expectations are that I am married to another human being who has good days and bad days, and some days she feels romantic, and some days she feels attracted to me, and other days she puts up with me. And praise God for both, because we need both, don't we? We need to teach our children some healthy expectations about relationships, realistic expectations. It doesn't take the fun out of marriage. It allows room for us to live with a real person and still have fun and not be mad all the time and disappointed all the time. So, ladies, if your expectation of marriage was defined by a harlequin romance, let's simplify those expectations. Man, if you're expectation of a wife was defined by some batch of sexy movies let's throw that trash out and get down to real life where intimacy is experienced in a lot of places in addition to the bedroom let's start with realistic expectations and learn to enjoy life with real people not an imagined version of what they ought to be solomon gives us a healthy idea of of realistic expectations and one of the final things I'll say about this in terms of realistic expectations is it is always unwise and unrealistic to expect another person to make you happy. I'm going to say that one again because we don't believe that. Most of us don't. It is unwise and unrealistic to expect another person to make us happy. There's another trap here. It's like, I don't feel completely happy, but I believe if I could be married to her, if I could be married to him, then I'd really be happy. So here's the trap. An unhappy person marries someone because I'm convinced that being with him would make me happy. And six months or a year or two or three or five years down the line, they're looking around going, well, I must have messed up. I must have married the wrong person because guess what? I'm still not happy. Is that because you married the wrong person? No. There is no perfect person for you to marry besides Jesus. 
the problem probably is that I ever expected Jackie to make me happy. If I'm not happy, it's not Jackie's job to make me happy. Now, granted, she could do some things to make it harder to be happy. But it's not her job to make me happy. We're the ones who decide whether we're happy or not. The experiences of life don't, don't determine whether we're happy. We determine whether we live with joy, satisfaction, and happiness in life. And to think that it's somebody else's job to make us happy is putting on them something that they can't bear. And you know what will turn that whole equation upside down? It's instead of living with an expectation of you need to make me happy, turn that whole equation around by deciding instead of living with that expectation, I'm going to choose to live with gratitude. Instead of saying, well, Jackie, I can make a list of things that you could do better that would make me happier. Instead of doing that, I turn the whole equation around when I just determine every day to look at my wife and say, thank you, God, for giving me a woman who loves me, who puts up with me, who does so much for me. And even though if I nitpick, could I find something that today or this week that she could have done that I wish she had done? Surely I could have, but I could make you a lot longer list of things she didn't have to do that she chose to do because she loved me. You you could focus on either one and be really happy and grateful or be really frustrated and disappointed, right? For the same set of circumstances. Which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to say, you should have made me happier this week? Or are you going to get up every day and say, thank you, God, for bringing that woman in my life, for putting that man in my life? Which one do you want? Grateful people are happier people 100% of the time. Living with gratitude will change your attitude. All right. Um, oh, one other word from Ecclesiastes about that. He says, no one knows what will happen. No one can say what will happen in the future. And, and one final word about relationships. You know, th- this is part of the, the suspense of life. You never know in a job. You never know in a relationship what's going to come. We expect fairness. We expect stability. And in relationships, you get surprises, don't you? I mean, what, what has happened, and I mean, this has been true for a whole bunch of people in the room, people who are listening and watching online, that your experience was you went into a relationship, you gave your all to it, you, without reservation, gave yourself to that person, you worked hard, you worked at the relationship, you were faithful, you weren't the perfect mate, but you were faithful, you did your part, and you worked through the really hard season of life of, of getting it all up and going and working through the lean years when you had so little and developing careers. And with the passing of time, you're finally going to enjoy the fruit of all of that. And you're so grateful that you did stick with it and pour all that you did into it only to be rewarded with discovering that that person is unfaithful and connects with somebody else. Or that they come home and tell you one day that they don't think they're in love with you anymore. Unfortunately, that happens to a lot of people in real life. A lot of people in this room have walked through those kinds of experiences. And part of what we need to understand is, if that happens to you, it's not because God hates you. It's not because God's mad at you or because God is unjust or not paying attention. It is a part of living in the real world with broken people around us that sometimes undeserved unplanned, unwanted things happen in the the most important and tender areas of our lives. And those things tend to leave scars for quite a while. But the good news is, in the real world, you can recover. And you can still have joy again. 
And you can learn to love again and be loved again. We'll pick up that thread in just a moment. The third expectation that he says to let go of is don't expect money or possessions to bring lasting happiness or peace. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon says, Whoever loves money will never have enough money. Let's say that one together. Whoever loves money will never have enough money. Do you believe that? I think we believe that. We just don't tend to realize how much of the time we love money. Whoever loves wealth will not be satisfied with it. Rich people worry about their wealth and cannot sleep. I'm convinced that one of the the most epidemic lies that we've bought into in American culture is, if I had more money, I'd be happier. Now, we may not think about it in exactly those terms, but that's really what we believe, isn't it? Don't you think most people that you know believe that if they had more money that they'd be happier? It's not true. It is not true. More money does not equal more happiness. Now, the, the reason that it's easy to hold on to and perpetuate that lie, at least in part, is, well, on the funny side, we could believe that because, like I heard a comedian say, I've never seen anybody frowning on a wave runner. <laughs> he said, money will buy happiness because I've never seen a, a sad person riding a wave runner. You know, I'm like, I get your point. But the, the truth of the matter is we believe this because... If I had more money, I'd stress less about paying my bills. And at some level, there's truth in that. It's like, if I made a lot more money, I wouldn't fret about how I'm going to pay the bills or how we're going to pay for Christmas this year or whatever. And you can reduce that part of stress in your life. What we fail to take into account is, with more wealth, always comes more worry if you're putting your your confidence in wealth. You don't realize it's going to be that way. Until you've ever experienced it and you look back and you realize, I fret as much about money as I ever did when I was making a half of this or a third of this. If you're putting your hope, your, your confidence and all in money, then you never escape the worry. You can make a lot more than what you're making now. You'll spend the rest of your life worrying about how to perpetuate that lifestyle because you never want to return to where you were. How are we going to live this level whenever we're retired? We're now going to have to really work doubly hard so that we never have to step back from this lifestyle. And now we've got to take care of all this stuff. If we put it in the stock market, we may lose it. But if we don't put it in the stock market, it's losing value because of inflation. What are we going to do? How are we going to? How are we... There's no end to worry if your security is in money. Solomon says, if it's about money, you're never going to have enough if that's what your confidence is in. He goes on and says in chapter 6, verse 2, he says, God may give some people plenty of wealth, riches, and glory so that they lack nothing that they desire. But God doesn't enable them to enjoy it. Instead, a stranger enjoys it. This is pointless and a sickening tragedy. One of the basic principles that Solomon drives home in Ecclesiastes is that it is a gift from God to be able to be content and enjoy whatever your level of income is. And some people don't have that gift. Some people have just, instead of setting their hearts on living for the Lord and being connected to Him, they set their hearts on everything else and they don't get that gift. And so it doesn't matter how much they've got. They, they're never content. You could give them another 100000 a year, they won't be any happier because they don't have the gift from God of just enjoying what they have. Is it, it's almost like an elusive little trick that God's just going, as long as you don't seek me, as long as you're chasing after success or money or, or more stuff or the bigger house or the lifestyle, I'm not going to give you the gift of contentment to enjoy what you have. Pursue me, and in return, I'll give you a gift of being able to just be content with what you have, to really enjoy the gifts that, that are around you. 
Don't you know that God just almost chuckles at times? At times just at how silly this whole chase is. So don't expect money to make you happy. Now I'll mention the fourth thing. I'm not going to teach on this at all. But if you read Ecclesiastes, you can't miss it because it's there over and over and over. And I'll just sum it up with this statement. Don't expect to live as long as you imagined that you would when you were younger. I'm 48 years old and I've made this observation. The first 24 years of my life lasted a lot longer than the last 24 years of my life. Anybody else notice that? And I fully expect that the third 24 years of my life from 48 to 72 is going to pass a lot faster than the first two sets of 24 years. The longer you live, the more you realize, man, life is short. When I was 14, the thought of living to 75 sounded like a million years. Suddenly, 75 looks like it's around the corner. Solomon said, don't expect to live as long as you thought you were going to live. It gives you a different perspective on life. Now, it's, I'm not going to take a long time on any of these three, but I want to mention three expectations that Solomon gave us to hold on to. The first one is this. Do expect your circumstances and your feelings to change over time. Tate opened the service today by reading Ecclesiastes 3, the opening 11 verses. I'm just going to read a portion of that again. Solomon said, there's a time for everything, and everything on earth has its special season. There's a time to cry and a time to laugh. There's a time to be sad and a time to dance. There's a time to throw away stones and a time to gather them. A time to hug and a time not to hug. There's a time to look for something and a time to stop looking for it. There's a time to keep things and a time to throw things away. The devil has a couple of lies that he uses over and over and over again. I mean, truly, you realize that the demonic... Or an organized army, an organized unseen army that are marshaled against us. And they have training and plans and instructions as to what they're supposed to do. And I'm convinced, possibly the two most significant lies that they are trained to whisper into our minds over and over and over. We've all experienced this. Those two lies are, you're the only one going through this. So don't even bother telling anybody else because nobody will understand. The goal there is isolation. We don't want them to be connected at a heart level with other people who could really help them and get to a better place. And then beyond that lie is just the tag team lie with that. It's never going to get any better. You'll always feel this way. You'll always be in this pit. If you're in a financial hole, you'll always be in a financial hole. You'll always be poor. If you're in an unhappy place in your relationship, your relationship will never get any better. It'll always be this bad. It's only going down. If you're dealing with pain or physical illness, you'll never feel better than this. You'll be sick the rest of your life. Have you ever had those kinds of lies whispered to you? Oh, that depression you feel right now, it's only going to get worse. You'll never be free from depression. That unhappiness you feel right now, it'll stick with you forever. It'll always be there. These are the most popular and common lies of the devil. The truth of the matter is that helps to counter this lie is that your circumstances and your feelings are going to change a lot with the passing of time. The devil wants you to believe that if you're in a pit, you'll always stay in that pit. And the truth is, your life is going to change. Whether you're in a great place or a terrible place, count on this. Your life is not static. It's going to change. Your circumstances will change and your feelings will change. And this is mostly very good news. 
Because this means where, whatever your circumstances are that make you feel like you're in a bind or you're just locked in and, and you're just feeling like, I don't think I'll ever get past this. And a lot of times we'll get there. We can get there about things like career or, or finances, but the place where we feel this the most is when relationally something's really broken. Oh, my marriage is in a terrible place. I'll never get out of this. I broke up with my fiancé or my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'll never find love again. I've been through a terrible divorce. My heart's been broken. I'll never love anybody the way I love that person. I'll never be in love again. I'll never be in a meaningful relationship again. The lies of the devil. The truth is, there's a time for everything under heaven. God has planned a season for everything. He's planned seasons for you to live with more than you need. And he's planned seasons for you to actually be in need and have to depend on him at levels that you've never known before. God has planned seasons for you to be alone. And he's planned seasons for you to know intimacy and companionship at levels that exceeded your best expectations. By God's design, there will be seasons when you walk in amazing levels of health. And there will be seasons when you or somebody near you is very sick. And the good news is that one of the most consistently true verses of Scripture that gets repeated again and again is, and it came to pass. It came for a season, and then it passed. I don't know what you're battling right now, but the good news is, chances are you're not going to battle it for the rest of your life. You may have come to believe that, but remember, the seasons change and your feelings change. How many of you... You can raise your hands on this one. How many of you, somewhere earlier in your life, let's think back to like our teenage or college years. You fell in love. You were so twitterpated, you just couldn't hardly stand yourself. And you knew that you could never love anybody the way that you loved that person. Only to see that relationship end. Thinking, oh Jesus, my heart will never mend. I'll never love again. Only to find yourself smack dab deep in love with somebody else a little bit later on. Raise your hand if that ever happened to you in life. And the rest of you are probably lying or just your memory's gone bad. It happens to all of us. You think, oh I can never love anybody the way I love this person. I can't live without them. Yeah, you can. You could love a bunch of different people the way you love that person. And you may have loved them for 20 or 30 years and loved them in marriage. Oh, that's going to hurt bad when they're gone. It's going to feel like somebody just ripped in your heart, ripped, reached in your chest, ripped your heart out, stomped on it, and then said, go on with life. It's going to feel like that for a while. But you know what? Jesus is the one who heals broken hearts, missing hearts, stomped on hearts. Jesus is the one who can take a totally broken life who says, I could never love again. I could never know joy again. And he says, oh, I'm the one who can speak to dead bones and put meat back on those bones. I can breathe life back into those bones. I am the one who changes circumstances and changes hearts. And God will change your heart over time. And that's good news. For everything, there's a season. He says in chapter 7, verse 14, When life is good, enjoy it. When life is hard, remember. God gives good times and hard times, and no one knows what tomorrow will bring. So, hey, when it's at its best, don't live in fear of, oh, I'm probably fixing to lose it all. No. But enjoy it and understand life. It, when, when you're just at the mountaintop, life isn't always going to be on the mountaintop. And that's okay because Jesus is faithful on the mountaintop and he's faithful in the valley. And when you're in the valley, you just remember he didn't leave you there. 
Second expectation, do expect to find enjoyment in work, people, and simple pleasures. This is not a contradiction to where I started. Don't expect your meaning and purpose in life to be defined by your work, but do expect to find enjoyment in work and people and in simple pleasures. I want to read you just three really positive passages from Ecclesiastes. He says in chapter 2, So I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work. And then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God, for who can eat or enjoy anything apart from Him? I want to just summarize really quickly. If you read all of Ecclesiastes, you see the verse I just read, you see that theme repeated again and again and again. Where Solomon, you feel like every three verses he's just going, meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. You can't ever seem to capture it. And yet, interspersed with that, he'll say again and again, and I've just discovered there's just nothing better than to just enjoy something good to eat, something good to drink, somebody to share it with. The fact that you've got a job to go to. That's not despair. That's learning to find satisfaction in real life where there's routine and where you just allow the simple things to become a joy. If I could just simplify a lot of what Solomon is saying, he's calling us to reclaim the table. To reclaim the joy and intimacy of the table. Make an event out of every meal that you can. If you have to strip that TV off the wall, stomp on the remote. If you have to, shut that sucker off and reclaim the dinner table and the lunch table and the breakfast table as a time to enjoy the gift of sharing life with a mate, with your children, with whoever you get to break bread with. Enjoy the food that's put in front of you with a thankful heart. Enjoy every bite. With a grateful heart, enjoy the company of the people who sit at the table with you. When you leave here, don't just go figure out something functional to just get lunch knocked out so that we can get on to the next thing. Enjoy the next hour after this service. Enjoy the people who are at the table with you. Reclaim the simple pleasures of life. He says in chapter 5, verse 19, And it's a good thing to receive wealth from God and and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. If you've got a restless heart that's so frustrated and, and discontent and you're not enjoying the people around you and you're not enjoying your work, I mean, it's one thing if you're in an awful job that's a terrible mismatch to work toward getting the next job, but don't quit the one you're in until you have the next one. By the way, that's just responsible. But ask God to give you a a gift of contentment. God, instead of living the lie of like, well, if I was married to another man, if I could find another wife, if I could trade this one in, if I had a different job, if, if instead of living that lie, ask the Lord, God, would you just teach me to live with a contented heart? Would you give me the gift of enjoying the people and the circumstances that I live in? And then this is a fun one. I'm glad you stuck around for this one. Ecclesiastes 9 says this. Some of you ought to just mark this one off to make it your verses to live by. Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Yes and amen. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, the Baptists in the room are going, wait a minute. What version of the Bible are you reading? Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors and scarves. Relish life with the spouse you love each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. Make the most of each one. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it and heartily. This is your last and only chance at it. We need to read that before we start every day, don't we? 
today when you get up? I mean, there's just great wisdom in that. He says, part of how you feel is going to be determined by something as simple as what you wear. Put on something that you feel great in. Dress festively. Dress in whatever makes you feel good. Enjoy the food around you. Enjoy the people around you. Whatever opportunities this day gives you, go for it. Go for it a hundred miles an hour. You'll never get a shot at this day. Don't you dare waste it. The biggest gift that you're given is the gift of time. Don't squander it. Enjoy the people and the opportunities that you have today. So go into the day expecting to find enjoyment. Because I'll tell you this. Whatever you look for this week, you'll probably find. Tomorrow, you or I could get up. I'll speak for my day. I could get up tomorrow and go, oh, Lord Jesus, it's Monday. That means I've got to go to the gym. I've got to get up early. It's going to be a long day. Oh, I don't want to be in the gym. And it's Monday. There's so much to be done this week. Oh, I dread that. Going to have to deal with some things that I can't control and some people that I don't want to have to deal with. Oh, I'll be so glad when this week is over. Or I could get up and start the day expecting it to be a great day. Grateful to God. God, I thank you that even though I want to sleep for another hour, that you have given me the strength and the health to go in the gym and work out. And though it's not fun sweating, I'm just so glad you've given me a healthy body to do that. I'm glad you've given me work to do. I don't know what the day is going to hold, but I believe you're going to give me chances to make a difference. And I'm so grateful that when I come home and finish the day, that I've got a wife who loves me and a home to enjoy and a bed to sleep in. They're both describing the same day. It's just one of those people's going to have a great day and one of them's going to have a miserable day, right? Well, you know which one Solomon's counseling us with. Seize life. Live it heartily. The final word is this. Do expect God to be faithful and His word to be true. The last and final word is this. Fear God. Do what He tells you and that's it. Eventually, God will bring everything that we do out into the open and judge it according to its hidden intent, whether it's good or evil. I talked a lot about the injustices of life. I talked a lot about the surprises of life. And it would be really hard to live with those things if we didn't have a clear understanding that there is a God who's in control. And that at the end of it all, He renders justice. That He's going to make sure... That even when you have injustice in your life, that you're never going to be abandoned. That he's going to see you through that. And when it's all said and done, he's going to make sure that that there's justice done in that situation. So if we live with a fear of him, we don't have to fret about the circumstances of life. I'll conclude with just a a personal thought on this. Uh, Some of you guys I've known for a really long time. And some of you, I look at Rudy and Mimi over here and some others that... We've walked together through a lot of things in life. And I I just think back how this passage speaks to some of my experiences in life. When I first knew some of you guys was way back when I was a student pastor at First Baptist Church in Fairhope. And I was really just seeking the Lord. What did he want in my life? And God blew me away with the realization that he was calling me to be a church planter. I was just a student pastor. I'd never even pastored a day in my life. And spent more time praying and fasting over that issue than anything I'd ever prayed and fasted over in my life. And got to the point I was really clear that God wanted to do that. We were in an unusual set of circumstances where the whole church was praying about the possibility of of planting a new church. And so it was like, wow, God's obviously at work in this whole thing. And we got to within a week of the day when the church was going to vote on that. And a week before that happened, 
a member of our staff got up and announced to the church, we're not voting on anything next week. There's going to be a new church because I'm going to lead out and I'm going to start a new church. And we witnessed a church being split apart. It was a full-blown church split that happened in a moment of time. Now, to my view, it happened in a moment of time. It had actually been months in the making. But the really bizarre part in that was I went from praying and fasting and going, Wow, God, I see the circumstances lining up with what you're saying in my heart. And yet I watch in a moment of time a train wreck happen. And all this chaos ensued, as always happens in a church split. People are angry and are really ready to lynch some people. And the person who led in that movement, who is, is a wonderful, godly person who just got caught up in, in a really bad set of circumstances and made some bad choices, pulled me aside three days later and said, I made a terrible mistake on that day. I was never supposed to do that. I know I wasn't supposed to do that. He said to me, I knew, I knew that you were the one that was supposed to lead in the new church, that you were the one we were supposed to send out to pastor the new church. But I was so desperate here. I just needed a way out. And so I stood up and did what I did. And I don't know how to undo it. So why don't you just come with me and we'll do it together. Confusing? Crazy? In that moment, because I'm like, I knew I was supposed to to lead in a new church plant but then i hear about all the deception and honestly some lies that have been told and how things have gotten to where they were and i'm like what do you do with that i've been praying and fasting and i've I've been honorable and everything i've been above board and now all this chaos is happening and it's impacting my life and and somebody's going just join in I, i've just i prayed and came back and said i can't do that that's not what I'm supposed to be a part of. There's just too much deception in this. And so they went on and a new church was planted out of that. And Really, here's some of the great fun of what happened for us. We stayed where we were for the next year. Really felt like God said, just love these people and help people's hearts to heal and help this church you know, get back to a healthy place. So I tried to do that. But what was really painful was there were a bunch of people left there with us who associated me with that movement. I was invited to be a part of that. And they had been told incorrectly that I helped to make that whole thing happen. And it's like, no, I did not. And I refused to be a part of it. But, you know, I got looked at and treated as if I were the enemy, as if I had been a part of that. That wasn't a lot of fun. We waited, and then the time came. I'm just praying, going, God, what are we supposed to do? I felt like you said something really clearly for me to do. And then circumstances occur that I don't control, that change all of that. What do I do? Over a year, God says, my call on your life hasn't changed. I want you to go and and launch a new church. But unfortunately, because of all that's gone on, you're just not going to have the blessing of the church that you're leaving. And you can't lead in another split. You're just going to have to leave quietly, bless the work that you're leaving, and just go. And you don't get to turn around and say, hey, I need a bunch of you to go with me. You just got to go and start out. And so that's what we did. And as we launched, here's the added blessing in the middle of that, starting from scratch. This was in 2000 when we started church on the Eastern Shore. I had people who were a part of the new church that had formed a year before come along and say to me, We're so sorry. We heard about what happened to you, that you helped us get up and get started, but then we didn't have enough money in the budget to pay your salary, and so we weren't able to hire you on, and that you were the one who got left out even after you helped to do this. And I'm just wanting to go, what? So now, you know, it's just like from every direction, you've got all of this confusion. And, and it was, some of y'all were there 16 years ago when we were getting up and started. And it was just, that's a rough, uncomfortable way to start. And I know, 
I know God blessed all that, and he used all that. Church on the Eastern Shore that's now three circle has grown and done great, and, and you see God's hand in it that much more because it happened that way. But please don't waste the time to come say to me after the service, oh, that was just God doing that. No, it wasn't. God was the one who blessed the church and caused it to grow. God didn't cause all the chaos around my life that created all this hurt because God isn't the author of lies. God isn't the one who causes all the, the bad decisions. God is the great redeemer who takes our terrible decisions and still works good out of that. Now, that's the short version. I'm not telling you that to vilify anybody. It's unfortunate that any of that happened for a variety of reasons. And I, I, I hate, I grieve the fact that the church that was formed a year before we planted doesn't exist anymore. That, it, that it's not even here. And that's, that's a tragic thing in and of itself. But, you know, the great lesson that I learned out of all of those experiences, because I looked around and just saw a lot of stuff that wasn't God. And I had to do a lot of going, where are you, God, in this? There's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of lies that have been told. There's a lot of hurt that's been caused. There's a lot that was counterproductive for the kingdom. We could have done this in such a better way if all of that hadn't happened. And you know what I've learned in response to all of that or out of all that? Is that Solomon's just dead on the money. Life isn't fair. Life isn't predictable. People at times that you've worked with and been loyal to will say and do things that wind up being totally unfair or untrue about you. And you know what you can count on in the middle of all that is that God is faithful. And he will redeem bad circumstances. He will redeem injustice. And he will work for his glory and even our good in spite of what other people do. And it may, it, sometimes it takes years. It took years to sort of work past the rough start because of other people's choices. But when it's all said and done, we can live with the final word, fear God and obey his commandments. And at the end of it all, he'll render justice. The bottom line for us is you can trust God. You can trust God in your marriage. You can trust God with your career. You can trust God with your finances. And it'll just help you along the way if you have some simplified expectations for those things that are realistic. That at the end of the day, it's God's faithfulness that's going to get us through. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? God, thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're just. Thank you that you work good out of our chaos. Some of us have been victimized by others, but at the same time, we've victimized other people. We've done things that have caused hurt in their lives and in ours. Thank you for your grace that covers our sin. Thank you for your love that gives us hope for tomorrow and joy in today. And I pray today, God, for a gift of contentment for every person in this room, every person watching and listening online, that we would learn to pursue you wholeheartedly and to be content with the life and the lot that you give us. We give you thanks for all that we enjoy and we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.